Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning. My name is Becca Stewart, if we don't yet know each other, and I serve as the pastor of spiritual formation here at DCC, and this morning, we are returning to our season of teaching on the Gospel of Luke. For Lent, we kind of hit pause, and we spent some time in the Beatitudes, Uh, but this morning, we are returning, and if you can remember back to January and February, we had spent time in chapters one and two looking at the birth narratives of both John the Baptist and Jesus, and today, we start a new section of Luke where we are once again introduced to John the Baptist, but he is no longer a baby. He is grown, and he shows up on the scene in this peculiar way with the purpose of pointing the way to Jesus. And so I'm going to be reading in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, if you'd like to follow along. And I'm just going to get my water ready because I'm going to need a lot of it today. Okay, here's what it says. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one uh, where, share what, with the one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear 
threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, Luke begins chapter 3 with a list of names, and by doing so, he is immediately giving us context. By locating John in the time of Tiberius, Pilate, and Herod, Luke is exposing a dark reality, that wherever one looked, they would see a Roman ruling over them. And by mentioning Annas and Caiaphas, high priests presiding over the Jewish temple with unrivaled power and privilege, Luke is setting the stage of corrupted religion. The picture Luke is painting here is one of social upheaval with intense economic, political, and religious implications for the people. Now, we know from earlier in Luke that John is the son of a priest, Zechariah. Perhaps you can recall his story, how one day he was working, carrying out his priestly duties in the temple when he was visited by an angel. And the angel told him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, who were both old and had previously not been able to have children, that they were going to have a son, a son, and they were to name him John. And the angel said that he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Their son was to be set apart. He was the one who the old prophets had spoken of, who would point the way to a coming king and a new order. Now, if John's father was a priest, he would have been one too. This is just how it worked. The the role of being a priest was passed down through the family ever since the office had been established after the Exodus. When Moses led the people out of uh, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God had instructed them to build the tabernacle, a tent structure that served as the dwelling place of God. And the priests were those who were assigned to preside over this dwelling place. They served as a mediator between the people of God and the place where God's presence dwelled. Now, the tabernacle was eventually replaced with the temple in Jerusalem, But the leaders of Israel rebelled, and the temple was destroyed, and the people were exiled from their land. But many years later, some returned to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple. And this second temple is where where Zechariah would have had his encounter with the angel and, and where he carried out his priestly duties. The temple had long been the center of Jewish religious life in Jerusalem. And I mean, everything was centered around the temple. But then comes John, as we read here in Luke chapter 3, who, although he is the son of a priest, does not show up in the temple. Instead, we find John in the wilderness, peculiar and full of fiery preaching, Rather than appearing in the uh, traditional priestly garb, John looked and sounded more like a prophet, bringing with him this message, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John is known as the Baptist, coming from the Greek word meaning dip, soak, or immerse. He was inviting people to come and be baptized. But where does that come from, and why would it have garnered attention? According to the Torah, Before entering the tabernacle or temple, one had to be ritually pure. And the primary way to restore ritual purity was through washing. And this would have been done in what's called a mikvah, a pool of natural water in which someone would bathe. 
Now, John's baptism likely drew on Jewish practices concerning ritual purity and then sort of transformed them. John shifts the focus from ritual impurity to moral impurity. Instead of a regular ongoing purification process for normal human activity, John speaks about A, like a one-time thing, baptism for the repentance of sins. At the time, the only one-time, once-for-all immersion practice was what was required for non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism. For the Jewish people, being told that they needed to be baptized and repent like non-Jews could have been insulting because it challenged their belief that if they were born into a Jewish family and did not reject God's law, that they would be saved. And perhaps this explains John's uh, pretty strong language in verses 7 through 9, where he calls the Jewish people a brood of vipers, warning them to not depend solely on having Abraham as their father. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Joel Green says this, John's proclamation ensures that his baptism is understood as an assault on the status quo that to participate in his baptism is to embrace behaviors rooted in a radical realignment with God's purpose. John was inviting the people to repent, which literally means to turn from what was and to turn towards something new. Now, this wasn't a new concept for the people of God, but the way in which John did it and where he did it, as Green said, was an assault on the status quo. Here, this priest was functioning outside of the temple and playing off of washing practices typically required for someone to enter into the temple. Now, there's a lot of speculation around this. Like, why would John do this? And what might have influenced him? And some have suggested that John may have been part of a religious sect known as the Essenes. And if that name is familiar to you, it might be because of their connection to the Dead Sea Scrolls. In response to the corrupt temple system of the time, the Essenes abandoned Jerusalem. They went out in in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord, following the commands as they saw it of the prophet Isaiah. They were ascetics who lived simply, and purification rituals were big for them. They practiced immersing in a mikvah daily. Now, while it makes a ton of sense that these similarities would raise questions about John's possible connection to the Essenes, there's something else here that I think ought to capture our attention. And that is that all of this is happening outside of the religious norms of the day, norms that had been in place since the time of the Exodus. John was challenging the religious system and questioning its authority. In Luke chapter 3, something new was happening. The people of God were experiencing a major shift. If John's ministry was any indication that what John was pointing to would shake things up, it would look different and it would feel different. Now, major shifts in the history of God's people aren't unheard of. The late Phyllis Tickle, a self-proclaimed sociologist of religion, wrote a fascinating book called The Great Emergence, where she recounts a pattern in the church, how every 500 years there is a substantial shift, a period of 
upheaval, followed by a period of settling down and then codification, and then eventually upheaval again. Now, maybe you are aware that 2017 was the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It was in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door on that church in Germany, what would come to represent a much larger shift um, that basically created a whole new branch of Christianity known as Protestantism, kind of separating itself out from the Roman Catholic Church. And it was 500 years before that, in 1054, when the Great Schism took place, the split between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. And it was about 500 years before that when Rome fell. Major debates were happening around Jesus's status, like, is he human or divine? And Gregory the Great helped bring the church out of the Dark Ages. And guess what was about 500 years before that? Luke chapter 3. Anglican Bishop Mark Dreyer likens these 500-year upheavals to giant rummage sales. During these shifts, the church does some major rearranging and cleaning out, deciding what gets to stay and what needs to go. There's always a central question being asked within these shifts. Who or what is the authority? And what always comes as a result is a new and different encounter with God. Now, when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, the temple was the primary place of religious authority. It was the place where God dwelled. And yet here he was inviting people out into the wilderness, resisting the authority of the temple, inviting people into a new and fresh, unmediated encounter with God. Now, maybe your brain has already made this connection. But if 2017 was the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and these massive rummage sales happen about every 500 years, then that means we are currently in real time likely living in the midst of one of these major shifts. Now, whether or not you were aware of that intellectually this morning before coming, my guess is that your body and soul is deeply aware. I mean, am I the only one who hears rummage sale and thinks, That is exactly what my inner and spiritual world feels like currently. What gets to stay, what needs to go, and who or what is the authority? Now, the thing about living through such a massive shift is that we can't fully grasp yet. We can't fully name yet what this shift means and how it's going to play out. Perhaps in another 100 years, or so, our ancestors will sit around and they'll discuss the various elements of this time and how each contributed to this shift, right? Things like politics and a global pandemic, right? The shift from um, kind of the move away from a more head-centered faith who views the Bible as the authority to something more experiential. They're going to compare the printing press and its role in the Protestant Reformation to the internet and its role in this current shift. But from our vantage point, we can only speculate. And what's super disorienting about this is that we can't quite make sense of what's going on around us. And we can't fully explain yet where it's headed. But we know it's real because we feel it in our body and in our soul and our spirit. 
And so how is it that we walk through and faithfully companion these transitional times? As the world and the church moves through this massive shift, how do we pay attention to the shifts happening in us? Maybe John the Baptist and his invitation to come to the wilderness and repent is still applicable today, to question who or what has authority in our lives and to look to a new and fresh encounter with God. I've been reading this book recently called Transitions by William Bridges. Is anybody familiar with this? Oh, no. Okay, put it on your book list. Transitions by William Bridges. I'm finding it to really resonate as I personally walk through this time. And in the book, he lays out the three phases of any shift, explaining that all transitions are composed of first, an ending, second, a neutral zone, and third, a new beginning. Now, maybe those seem kind of elementary and obvious, but I'm not so sure they really are. My own cultural experience has taught me something more like um, come up with a new goal, make a change, forge ahead. We tend to view growth in a very additive way. Change often simply means asking, what do I need to add to my life? But beginning with an end means acknowledging that something in your life is lost, that something is dying or dead. Because of this, we have to first let go of something before something else can be added. We have to unlearn before we can learn anew. Here's how Bridges says it. Every transition begins with an ending. We have to let go of the old thing before we can pick up the new one. Not just outwardly, but inwardly, where we keep our connections to people and places that act as definitions of who we are. Endings are, let's remember, experiences of dying. They are ordeals, and sometimes they challenge so basically our sense of who we are that we believe they will be the end of us. Endings are the first, not the last act of the play. In any transition, we must begin with the end, or maybe we could say, we must repent. Remember, to repent means to turn from what was and to turn towards something new. Now, if we think that naming and acknowledging the end is hard, and it is, no wonder we totally resist the second phase, what Bridges refers to as the neutral zone. Now, neutral may not sound so bad, but here are some of the other words to describe this time. Emptiness, nothingness, waiting, uncertainty, absence, darkness, wilderness. In the Bible, the wilderness represents a liminal space, an in-between place where ordinary life is suspended, identity shifts, And eventually, new possibilities emerge. But first, there is waiting and wondering. It's a time of listening and surrender. This is where you find yourself when you've left one place and you haven't quite reached another. It's in this space that we ask the questions, what gets to stay and what needs to go and who or what is the authority? At some point, we move into that third phase that third phase, and something is birthed, and we experience a new beginning, but not without walking through this uncomfortable liminal space. 
Transition always includes an end, an in-between time, and a new beginning. Does that sound familiar, by the way? We're only a week out from Easter. And really what we're talking about and observing here is the universal pattern of death, burial, and resurrection. In recent months, I was talking with my spiritual director, Lauren, and I was trying to describe my experience of God in this season. And I told her that I am missing the magic of what my spiritual experience once was. Ooh, I kind of brought up some emotion as I said it. And I almost never used that word magic, but it was the only way I knew how to describe it. And being the very wise woman she is, she very gently let me know that I can't get that magic back, but that I can expect something new. And that has stuck with me in sort of this haunting way. There's a real deep sadness in it for me, honestly, And there's a kind of hope and curiosity for what can be and what will be. I think her words helped me to acknowledge the end of a phase. And rather than hustle to get it back or maybe sit around questioning what's wrong with me or or what's wrong with God, instead, it's slowly opening me up to wait for whatever it is that will emerge. According to Bridges, losing the magic, or as he calls it, disenchantment, is not uncommon in transition. Here's what he says about it. Disenchantment is the signal that things are moving into transition. The whole idea of disenchantment is that reality has many layers, none wrong, but each appropriate to a particular phase of intellectual and spiritual development. The disenchantment experience is a signal that the time has come to look below the surface of what has been thought to be a certain way. It is the sign that you are ready to see and understand more now. Lacking that perspective on such experiences, however, we often miss the point and simply become disillusioned. The disenchanted person moves on, but the disillusioned person stops and goes through the play again with new actors. I appreciate Bridges' distinction here. In this season of major shifts, are we disenchanted or disillusioned? Are we moving on or are we returning to the old ways of relating to the world? Just going through the play again with new actors. Maybe another way to consider this is by asking, am I open to new experiences of God, myself, and others, or am I in my new experiences, still showing up as the person I was and expecting others, including God, to do the same? Disillusionment comes when I keep reaching back for that magic. I keep functioning as if I should and will experience God and the world in that way. What gets to stay, what needs to go, and who or what is the authority? Now, can we just talk about authority for a minute? Authority is a very interesting subject to me, especially as it pertains to our spiritual lives. I'm curious, in your life, how you would answer the question, who or what is the authority? Where is authority located? Where is the authority located that gets to make decisions about your life? As we've already mentioned, every great shift in history interacts with and responds to this question. It's something we also have to wrestle with in our own personal transitions. In his day, John the Baptist brought the temple into question. 
The temple had long been considered the place of authority because it was understood to be the dwelling place of God. But John seemed to be offering something new, an encounter with God that took the authority out of the temple and placed it elsewhere. But where was that exactly? Now, we're jumping ahead in the story a bit, but John came to point the way to Jesus, who in the Gospel of John is described this way, as the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwell here is the Greek equivalent to the word used to describe the tent or the tabernacle that God had commanded Moses to construct. Apparently, the dwelling place of God had moved from the temple to humanity, the presence of God now dwelled in a human. And is, as if that isn't incredible enough, it turns out that Jesus would not be the only human in which the presence of God dwelled. As we read further into the New Testament, the writers continue to use temple language, but are no longer talking about a building. Instead, they refer to the people of God as the temple. Now, in John's day, this would have been astounding for sure. But what about today? How does this hit you? This idea that you don't need a mediated experience of God, that you not only have direct access to God, but you are in fact the container of God. God dwells in you. Now, I'm not sure how you answered that question about who or what has authority, but I can very confidently tell you the correct answer. The one who has authority is you. Now, that is both incredible and kind of hard news. Why? Because authority equals responsibility. And maybe it's because I'm an Enneagram 8, and I instinctively pay attention to power and the dynamics of authority. Maybe it's because the title of pastor is still relatively new for me, and so I'm still doing this whole thing where I'm observing what it's like as a leader, to be viewed as a leader in this setting of church rather than a, you know, a participant in the community. And it's interesting. And here's my observation. We have authority issues in the church. And I mean the universal church, but DCC is not exempt. Some of you are like, duh. <laughs> Thanks for that brilliant insight, Becca. You guys, I don't mean that there is just unhealth and the handling from authority from above. And there is, and there has been. I mean this. We, as individual participants, constantly deny our God-given agency and quickly outsource our authority to others. We wait for others to define us and to define God for us. It's like we're waiting for permission to be who God created us to be. And here's what happens as a result. We maintain unhealthy patterns with authority. We expect others to do the work that is ours to do. We live in disillusionment instead of disenchantment because although we moved on from that church or that relationship that hurt us, we show up somewhere else. And as Bridges puts it, we go through the play with new actors. We wait for the new circumstance to, with authority, do the work to heal what unhealthy authority has wounded. Authority becomes problematic when it is abused from above, but also when it is outsourced from within. 
Now, please hear me say that I don't and we don't take lightly the reality that a place like DCC tends to be a pretty safe in-between place for so many to do the work of sorting through what gets to stay and what needs to go. But if DCC is only a safe place to do some sorting, but your relationship to and with authority doesn't change, it won't be, and it can't be a healing space for you. I hate to break it to you, but as great as we all are in leadership here, we have some major flaws. We weren't meant to be the expert and authority on your life. We can't do the work for you. And to be honest, that is such a relief to me. This isn't to say we don't need one another. We do. I need you. I need you to grow more fully into who God created you to be, the beloved dwelling place of God a person who owns and exercises your God-given authority. You have unique gifts and passions to contribute to this community and beyond, right? That's why we are here. We're not just going it alone. We were meant to do this together, not one above the other, but as, as fellow sojourners, or as Henry Nowen, who I love, would say, each from our own place of sacred solitude, Listen to this from Henry Nahn. Why is it so important that solitude come before community? If we do not know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we're going to expect someone in the community to make us feel that way. They cannot. We'll expect someone to give us that perfect, unconditional love. But community is not loneliness grabbing onto loneliness. I'm so lonely and you're so lonely. It's solitude grabbing onto solitude. I am the beloved, you are the beloved. Together we can build a home. I love that. I am the beloved, you are the beloved. Together we can build a home. Today, as in the time of John the Baptist, things are shifting. I mean, they've changed. Life has changed. We find ourselves in new circumstances, facing new realities, and wrestling with many unanswered questions. Be encouraged. This isn't a sign that you've misstepped. Rather, it is an affirmation that you are, in fact, human and on the path, participating in the universal pattern of death, burial, and resurrection. This morning, I invite you to hear again and consider the invitation from this peculiar preacher who showed up in an unlikely place by unlikely means to point the way to something new. Repent, turn away from what was and turn towards something new. Don't resist this wilderness season. It's time to consider what gets to stay and what needs to go. And it's time to put authority in its proper place. Brothers and sisters, if we will allow ourselves we are being invited toward a new and fresh encounter with the divine. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these people, for this morning, for the time we find ourselves in. God, help us to be able to acknowledge what's real, what's happening, what's stirring inside of us. Give us wisdom as we sort 
Give us wisdom and the ability to be honest with ourselves as we ask the questions of authority. God, we trust you. Help us to trust you. As we move into whatever this new season might be, God, help us to know you are with us and that you love us. We are expectant. We want more of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.